What kind of people do you like to work with? Go ahead and just answer out loud. Let's do some audience participation. Just be honest. Do you say cute face? Oh, <laughs> like, okay, all right, all right. Dinosaur, this is like dinosaur reliable. What kind of people do you like to work with? Kind, kind people. people. Competent. Competent. People who believe in the Bible. Amen, Elisha. Amen. Amen. Oh, paleontologists who believe in very specific. Amen, amen. What kind of people do you like to work with? What kind of people do we gener generally like to work with? Well, as you all said, we generally like to work with people who are capable, intelligent, reliable, likable, maybe a cute face, I don't know. <laughs> I know that's not what you said, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we like to work with people who seem to be on their way up, not on their way down. We like to work with the strong not the weak. And it's natural to want to work with competent people. It really helps, doesn't it, when we work with competent people. But there's a danger here. There's a danger we have to guard ourselves against. There's, there's a danger from assuming, if we're not careful, that those with differing cognitive or physical abilities than us are therefore less than us. Do you see the danger? And this happens in our workplaces when we kind of quietly ignore those that everyone else is ignoring because this, that, or the other. To illustrate this point, Kelly Capick teaches at Covenant College. In his excellent book, I strongly recommend you picking up you're Only Human is the title. You're Only Human. Capic asked this question. When we engage those who have Down syndrome, do we imagine we are the only ones bringing something of value to the relationship? Or can we learn from them? He talks about how we value people who are intellectually quick when we fail to appreciate those who force us to slow down. He says, quote, it's not difficult to see how easily we have imposed the scale of being efficient onto our perception of being human. Consequently, valuing people in terms of productivity and speed, end quote. This kind of mindset is perhaps why many of us unconsciously avoid or ignore those with disabilities of various kinds. Interestingly, Jesus moved towards the blind the lame, the beggars. Now, whether we have specific disabilities or not, whether we're competent or not, and this, that, or the other, I think many of us, I know I feel this way, and I think many of us feel guilty or ashamed that, or insecure that we don't know enough, we aren't smart enough, we aren't physically strong enough, we don't know the right people, we aren't attractive enough, that our willpower fluctuates based on our blood sugar, based on our coffee intake. It's real easy to start feeling guilty or ashamed that we aren't more competent than we are. 
But what if, brothers and sisters, what if God actually prefers to work with people who didn't get picked first on the playground? Who didn't score the highest on the ACT? Who have deep and abiding fears and insecurities? What if God prefers, prefers to work with the weak and despised over the strong and successful? What if God actually prefers to accept those who everyone else rejects? In Genesis chapter 29, we're going to see Jacob get a taste of his own medicine. He's going to be deceived into marrying two sisters instead of one, Leah and Rachel. Next week, we'll see the effects of this terrible arrangement. But this week, we're going to see that though... Though God's plan isn't the one Jacob would have chosen for himself, it is the plan that, that demonstrates God's desire to accept the rejected. Genesis 29, begin to find your way there if you haven't already. There are some black Bibles in the pews in front of you. Genesis chapter 29. The main point of this chapter is short and sweet. The main point of this sermon is therefore short and sweet. The Lord accepts the rejected one. The Lord accepts the rejected one. The Lord accepts the rejected one. Verses 1 through 14, Jacob meets Rachel. 15 through 30, Laban deceives Jacob. 31 through 35, the Lord sees Leah. The Lord sees Leah. So 1 through 14, Jacob meets Rachel. 15 through 30, Laban deceives Jacob. And then 31 through 35, the Lord sees Leah. In this chapter, Laban's scheming and Jacob's neglecting are purposefully set in contrast with the Lord accepting the rejected one. That's where we're going. Number one, verses 1 through 14, Jacob meets Rachel. Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, we're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. 
And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. This story reminds us of when Abraham's servant meets Rebekah at a well back in chapter 24. There are lots of parallels and similarities between these stories, the 24, chapter 24 account and this chapter 29 account. For example, there's a journey to a distant land, an arrival at a well, a girl who's a cousin of the groom-to-be comes to draw water from the well, water is drawn, the girl return, returns home, reports what has happened to her family, the traveler is brought to the girl's house, and eventually a marriage happens between the man looking for a wife and the girl met at the well. Lots of parallels between when Abraham's servant meets Rebecca and when Jacob meets Rachel. But there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between this account and the account from 24. Throughout 24, Abraham's servant, you might remember, prays, and then when God answers his prayer, he praises. So throughout the chapter, we found the servant praying and praising. Did you see any praying or praising in this chapter? <laughs> no. No. The servant was prayerful. Jacob is prayerless. The servant acted on the basis of faith and prayer. Jacob appears to be acting on the basis of physical attraction and personal strength. We might wonder, based on what we saw at the end of chapter 28 last week, has Jacob surrendered his life to God? Remember that vow he makes at the end of the chapter? He takes the pillar he'd slept on, sets it up, anoints it with oil. He renames the place. Then 20 through 22 of chapter 28, he makes this vow, seemingly indicating that he's believing God to do what he's promised to do, even promising to give a tenth of all that he owns to God. But then we get to this chapter. Jacob's not praying, not praising. He's just attracted and displaying his strength. So we wonder, is Jacob surrendered to God or not? Well, what we will learn as we go through these chapters in the next coming weeks is that Jacob's faith, like yours and mine, is a faith that's still developing. It's a faith that's still growing. At the end of 28, he's worshiping. In 29, there's no worship or prayer to be seen. Here in 29, he seems to still be a man characterized by action and scheming uh, than he is by obvious and outward trust in the Lord. Jacob is a man in process. God isn't done with Jacob yet. He is slowly but surely molding him into the servant leader of his people he wants him to be. In just a few more chapters, when he has the all-night wrestling match with God, God will finally have all of Jacob's attention. But he's not quite there yet. He's a man in process. Now, do we like processes and procedures? <laughs> do we like things that slow us down? No. Anytime I have to fill out a form, my first reaction is like, what's Susie doing? <laughs> 
These things that slow us down are not what we enjoy. But I would argue that God loves slow processes. God values processes, not just finished products. Two pieces of evidence that I think prove that. God created the universe in six days. He created all that there is in six days. He could have done so in a millisecond. But He chose to create all that is slowly, methodically. He chose a process over an instantaneous finished product. And secondly, He's chosen to change us, His people. Paul says, from one degree of glory to another through the lifelong process of sanctification as we behold the glory of the Lord. As Paul Tripp likes to say, change is not an event. <laughs> it's a process. God is not in a hurry. We prefer rapid download speeds, fast food, instant gratification. God prefers the crock pot of slow and steady growth over the microwave of quick fixes. This is instructive for us, brothers and sisters, because sin and shame tempt us every day to give up. But brothers and sisters, we must not give up. Slow does not mean done. Amen? God's work in our life is painfully slow, but not non-existent, not complete. Just because you don't perceive it doesn't mean it's not there. In and through our struggles, God is brewing and building something beautiful from one degree of glory to another. Jacob is a man in process. You're a man. You're a woman in process. Let's be okay with the process. Let's embrace the process and stop beating ourselves up all the time that we aren't where this person is or that person is. God loves processes, not just finished products. Now, just because Jacob doesn't ask for God's help or acknowledge God's help in this chapter, when he gets to this well and meets Rachel, it doesn't mean that God isn't there working behind the scenes, governing what's happening here. One of the things Moses wants us to see in these first verses of 29 is the size of the stone that covers this well. Did you notice how many times he mentions the stone? It's like, who cares about the stone? But the stone is really important. In verse 2, the stone on the well's mouth was large. Verse 3, he says it takes all the shepherds to move the stone. And then the shepherds confirm that down in verse 8. Wells in that day and time would be covered with a large stone to keep the well clean and also to keep people from falling into it. The size of this stone tells us that this well was restricted to use by a group of shepherds because it took several shepherds to move the stone. In other words, not just anyone could walk up to this well and use it. The stone was too big. It took lots of shepherds to move the stone. So, in verse 10, when Jacob single-handedly moves the stone, we're meant to see this as God helping Jacob to do something incredible. Now, he's also clearly trying to impress Rachel. First with the feet of strength and then with an act of service. Jacob came near, rolled 
the stone from the, mel the well's mouth and then watered the flock of Laban. So he's, he's showing strength and then he's serving. Then, after he moves the stone, he has this great show of emotion where he kisses Rachel and then he weeps out loud. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. This is not a good dating strategy, by the way. <laughs> Girls generally aren't impressed by guys just trying to be impressive. They see right through that stuff. Amen, ladies. What is impressive about what, what's happening here, though, is that apparently at the wrong time, verse 7, Jacob says, it's still high day. It's not time for watering. What, what are you guys doing here? So apparently at the wrong time, Jacob is at the right place and meets the right girl. What's impressive about this is that despite Jacob's prayerlessness, despite all his bravado, trying to impress, God's providence is still lurking in the background, silently leading and governing these events. Moses, as I've said, is clearly contrasting Abraham's servant from chapter 24 to Jacob's approach here in chapter 29. Both result in the forwarding of God's plan and promises. But one character moved in God's strength. The other character, Jacob, moved in his own. And from this contrast, Moses, the teacher, is teaching us to consider whether we are moving forward in God's strength or our own strength. We all do what Jacob does here. Our, on our journey through life, we come to a turning point and... Y'all tell me if this is true or not. Our knee-jerk reaction, our knee-jerk reaction is often to immediately turn to our resources rather than God's. Who can I call? How much money do I have? What should I do? We do what Jacob is doing here. How do we know when we're doing this? We don't often see this in our lives. Well, let me give you a few indications that we may be moving in our own strength rather than God's. First and probably most importantly or obviously, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Brothers and sisters, if your prayer life, this is not a drive-by guilting, okay? I'm not the guy who says you have to have a 13-hour quiet time every morning, okay? And then God will be close to you. But if your life is characterized more or less by no prayer, or very little prayer, or sporadic prayer, or only prayer when you really are in a bind, or prayer when you really want something, then you're probably relying on your strength and not God's. But if your life is, is reflective of a growing prayerfulness about everything all the time, not just for a few minutes at the beginning, the day, end of the day, church, or whatever, but a growing prayerfulness, your life is likely one, dependent on the Lord's strength because you know that you can't do this stuff without Him. How about a lack of accountability? Just going it alone, never talking to people about sins and struggles. Or how about when we make decisions without seeking wise counsel, just assuming that we know what's best all the time, that we don't have anything more to learn or when we're consumed with what others think, wanting to be impressive rather than known. Acting one way at church and another way at home. 
Are we living in our strength? Are we moving in our strength or God's? And as a church, congregationally, we should reflect on whether we're moving in God's strength or our own. Are we neglecting the word and prayer in our gatherings, in our small groups, in our relationships? Are we leaning on programs and gimmicks? Do we show up at church wanting to be served rather than serve? Whose strength are we relying on as a church and as individuals? Unfortunately, until Jacob wrestles with God in a few chapters and walks away with a new name and a new limp, he'll continue to try to secure God's blessings on his own. Until then, God graciously pushes his plan forward through Jacob despite Jacob's immaturity and self-focus, and thankfully, he does no less with us. If God just waited on us to like always do stuff in his strength and not ours, then guess what? He's going to be waiting a while. God's plan is going forward through the process of our growth and dependence on God. So, Jacob meets Rachel Number two, Laban deceives Jacob, verses 15 through 30. Number two, Laban deceives Jacob, 15 through 30. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days of the love he had for her. Because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. In chapter 27, two brothers were exchanged by a trick before a blind man. Here in chapter 29, two sisters are exchanged by a trick in the darkness of night. Jacob likely had had too much to drink, and Leah likely wore a wedding veil. It was dark outside. It was evening, making Laban's trick possible. 
Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine. And verse 25 says he's furious. What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob has been out Jacobed. Laban's reply in verse 26 leaves Jacob speechless. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Does that sound familiar? The younger before the older. Whether Laban knew what Jacob had done, we don't know. But narrator Moses is making sure we don't miss the irony here. Laban's words to Jacob describe exactly what Jacob had done to bring him here in the first place. Moses is showing us that Jacob's past is catching up with him, that he's getting what he deserved for how he treated Esau back at home. One commentator says, In Laban, Jacob meets his match and his means of discipline. Jacob is in the refiner's fire. He's being humbled so that he'll be fit to be a servant leader of God's people. Now, of course, friends, Jacob isn't the only one in this room who needs a Laban in his life. I'm not wishing deceit upon you. But we all need the refinement of God's loving hand in our lives, do we not? And that refinement usually comes through people that are very close to us. A brother or sister at church, a spouse, a friend, a child who gently points out that you're letting sin be the boss. To make matters worse, Jacob is stuck working for this father-in-law who's willing to treat his daughters as commodities for bargaining and trading for seven more years. This passage makes it absolutely clear that Laban is more interested in a business arrangement with Jacob than he is in helping his relative, his nephew, get a good start on building his own home. The word serve is used seven times in this passage. Seven times. It bookends the passage. Verse 15. Should you serve me for nothing? Verse 30. Jacob served Laban for another seven years. So Jacob, a relative, a nephew of Laban, is reduced to a business partner. Jacob has gone into a foreign land seeking blessing only to become a servant. Which, of course, foreshadows Israel's stay in Egypt. For the next 20 years, Laban and Jacob's relationship is more like an oppressive lord over an indentured servant rather than an uncle to his nephew. To Laban, Jacob is nothing more than a laborer under contract. Now this passage, this passage doesn't tell us how Rachel or Leah felt about their Father treating them like objects for monetary gain. In a couple chapters, in 31, we're going to hear from Rachel and Leah, uh, Leah what they really think about what their father has done. We don't learn that here. At least here, you might say that, you know, Rachel has the love of Jacob. But shouldn't we stop and think about Leah for a minute? Can you imagine what Leah was feeling in all this? Leah was used as a pawn in her father's financial game. All very publicly. Verse 22. So Laban gathered together 
all the people of the place and held a feast. It says over in verse 17 that Leah's eyes were weak or soft. This likely means that she had weak vision, exactly what it says. That word literally just means weak. That she had weak vision or a disability that would have made it really hard to get by in the ancient world, just as it does today. Perhaps this is why her, her sister Rachel is the one out shepherding sheep, not her. Verse 17, though, contrasts her eye problem with Rachel's beauty. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Do you see the contrast Moses is drawing? He's trying to help us see something about Leah. Here's Leah with bad eyesight, not as pretty as her sister, struggling with deep insecurities about her disability, her appearance, her attractiveness. Then her father publicly humiliates her by making her sleep with, sleep with and marry a man who's in love with her sister. Leah's denied the opportunity to marry someone who loved her. She's forced into a relationship with a man who loves someone else. Just try for a minute to put yourself in Leah's shoes, to feel what Leah's feeling on the night that her father, Jacob, takes her to, excuse me, Laban takes her to Jacob's tent. Publicly parading her around for a week. As Jacob's new wife. Leah was used and abused by those who were supposed to protect her and cherish her. And then she's just used as a pawn in her dad's financial game. A game as the new wife of her dad's latest business partner. This story should break our hearts, friends. This kind of stuff should make our blood boil. And I love, by the way, that this kind of stuff is in the Bible. It speaks to its authenticity. If people wanted to just make up a story about God and His relationship with humanity, they would probably leave out the wicked stuff, right? It's not what happens, not in Genesis. <laughs> this is not how God designed things to work. Amen? We're supposed to see the injustice and evil toward Leah and feel some of the pain that she felt that night. Her dad betrayed her. But Moses wants us to know that we aren't the only ones who see the evil committed against Leah, the evil scheming committed against her. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived, bore a son, and said, now, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. 
Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The Lord accepts the one who was rejected. Number three, the Lord sees Leah. The Lord sees Leah. Rachel will eventually have a child. But for now, the Lord wants her and Jacob and Laban to see that he doesn't work the way that they do. That he doesn't take advantage of weak people, but instead blesses them. Now, Jacob's coolness towards Leah is understandable. He wanted to marry Rachel, right? We can understand the way he felt. <laughs> but these verses tell us what Leah and God thought about his favoritism. Leah's utterly heartbroken, so heartbroken that her husband doesn't love her that she names her first three sons out of that pain. The text says she names her sons based on her being hated, afflicted, unloved, unattached to her husband. The depth of her pain is so deep that she names her sons these names born out of that pain so that every time she calls their name, she'll remember the pain of their father in her life. She longs to be accepted instead of rejected. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, on the human plane, the story demonstrates the craving of human beings for love and recognition and the price of thwarting it. And some of you know exactly how Leah feels. You've been rejected, denied the love and care you needed, used and abused in ways that leave you feeling hollow and ambivalent and full of rage all at the same time. There's always a price to be paid when we don't receive what God designed us to receive from those close to us. But there's also this unbelievable fact in this text and in your life that the Lord enters into tragedies like this with care and healing hands. Derek Kidner continues. So he says, on the human plane, this demonstrates the craving that we all have. On the divine level, this story shows once again the grace of God choosing, choosing difficult and unpromising material, end quote. In other words, God moves toward the people everyone else is rejecting. Isn't that what's happening here? Leah ends up having more children than Jacob's other three wives combined. He takes the two servants as his wives in the next chapter. Leah has six of Jacob's 12 sons. She actually has seven total children because she has a daughter also, as we'll learn next week. Two of her first four sons become the priestly and kingly tribes of Israel, the Levites and Judah. This is evidence, unmistakable evidence of God's blessing over Leah's life despite her affliction. And Leah recognizes this. Re Leah recognizes God's presence in her affliction. I wonder if you do. Do you recognize the Lord's presence in your affliction? Leah names three out of these four boys with reference to the Lord. 32, 
The Lord looked, 33. The Lord heard, 35. I will praise the Lord. She has faith in Abraham's God, the Lord, not in Laban's gods. By her fourth child, it's apparent that she's giving up trying to find emotional fulfillment in her husband and looking to the Lord alone. This time, 35, I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. She says with the psalmist, what Stephanie read earlier, my father or my husband has forsaken me, but the Lord will bring me in. In the Lord, the unloved wife is finally able to transcend her distress. Pastor Dane Ortland asked this, how do you handle distress? This was so, so helpful for me. How do you handle emotional, psychological, physical, financial distress? What is your heart impulse when you feel swamped by adversity? Cry out to the Lord, he says. He will lead you to a place of safety. Perhaps it will not be the safety you expect. Perhaps it will not be immediate, immediate deliverance from your present trials. But at bottom, He will assure you of your final and ultimate safety in the arms of Jesus Christ. How do you handle your distress, brothers and sisters? What do you do in your anguish? Where do you run? What substance or relationship or program do you run to in your distress? Cry out to the Lord. Find safe assurance in the arms of Jesus Christ. Leah was hated and afflicted and ignored. She lived with physical disability, was publicly shamed by her father. But she comes to praise the Lord. She comes to praise the Lord. May her example move us to move toward the Lord in our affliction, not away from Him. Afflicted saint, do you remember what we sang earlier? Afflicted saint to Christ draw near. Sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. The Lord sees Leah and her affliction. in her affliction. She comes to praise the Lord as a result. But there's more going on here than even Leah sees. Leah brings these four sons into the world, and then she has two more sons in the next chapter and a daughter. Her fourth son, verse 35, she called his name what? Judah. Do you know anything about Judah? Do you know anything about Judah? Leah brings Judah into the world, and Judah, Genesis 49 tells us, will bring the Messiah into the world. Genesis 49, 8-10. This is Jacob blessing and prophesying over his sons. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be, shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Jacob is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In God's mercy, the daughter and wife 
who was unloved will help bring the King of Kings, the Messiah, into the world. God is working His sovereign purposes through the wrong wife, you might say. The Messiah will come from the wife Jacob hated. This Messiah, like one of his distant mothers, Leah, was also rejected by men. Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men. And then at the end of the Gospels, as Jesus is on trial, this mock trial, the Gospel of Mark says, Pilate said to the crowd, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They cried out to them, to them Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So the lion of the tribe of Judah was here at that fake trial, rejected in favor of a scheming snake, Barabbas. Like Leah, he'd done no evil. He was used and abused to satisfy the whims of sinful men. But also like Leah, there was more going on there than met the eye. There was more going on in his rejection than people understood. The reason that Jesus was rejected by the crowd on that day is so that we can be accepted by God on judgment day. Our sin separates us from God, the Bible says, removing us from His presence so that God is just to judge us if we are still in our sins. But if we will call out to God through faith in Christ for mercy. He will take away our sins and grant us His righteousness. In mercy, God sends Jesus to be rejected, to die on the cross to absorb the judgment that we deserve so that everyone who trusts in Him will be brought back into full acceptance with God. We know that this plan worked, if you will, because... Jesus raised from the dead. How do we know the Father accepted the Son's sacrifice? Because He raised from the dead. God proves through raising His Son that He completely accepted Jesus' sufficient sacrifice for sin. The resurrection means that the Lord accepted the rejected one. Brothers and sisters, the promise of the gospel is that everyone who trusts in Christ will be accepted by God. No matter who you are, where you come from, what color your skin is, what, you're, what you look like, what disability you have, what difference you have, what cognitive abilities you have, what strength you have, what weakness you have, what you've done, what's been done to you. If you look to Jesus in faith and turn from your sins, God will see you, hear you, and accept you joyfully into His family. Amen. That offer is... For you today, friends, if you haven't yet accepted Christ, the Lord accepted, rejected Leah. The Lord accepted, rejected Jesus. And He accepts, rejected us through faith in Christ. The Lord, friends, loves accepting the rejected. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take your word, write it on our hearts. Help us to rest in, if we are yours, help us to rest in the acceptance that we have in Christ. Help us to be okay with the process 
of sanctification, of slowly becoming more like you. May that compel us, not toward slothfulness, but toward worship and gratitude and diligence and discipline. Lord, may your people in this room hear this gospel and be encouraged again to move forward in the strength of your name through prayer, through relationships, through humility, through confessing need. Lord, cleanse our hearts of haughtiness and pride and self-sufficiency and self-focus. Father, help us to receive any discipline that we need to receive from those close to us. Refine us. Make us more like Christ. Lord, help us to see those who are rejected the way that you see them. Please protect our hearts from the thought that we are better than anyone. We are nothing, Father. There's Christ the perfect one, the, the righteous one, and then there's everyone else, unrighteous. God, humble us. Make us a humble people, especially before those who are rejected, displaying what you have done for us. Soften our hearts, Father, I pray. Prepare us now as we reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ. Prepare us to take the supper. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.